0: Internal monologue. In this episode we're going to be discussing the Babylon 5 season 4 series, or season finale would have been the series finale if uh, you know, uh TNT hadn't stepped in. The Destruction of Falling Stars. Uh, this is a very fascinating episode because it is not your standard episode. Um, it's essentially four short stories that all converge into telling one big thematic piece about the universe and just general uh, social commentary about the way we keep history. Um, because essentially you have Sheridan wondering, you know, will the what I did ever be remembered and does it matter? And there's this entire thing, there's this entire philosophy about living in the now uh that the past is the past the future is uncertain uh so live right now because that's all you got 100 years 10 years you know just a little six months it doesn't matter what happens right now do what you want be who you are and own it uh there's a wonderful comic by Denny O'Neill and Dennis Cowan called The Question. It's my favorite comic of all time. That That is one of these central themes. Um, and here we get an exploration of that by Sheridan isn't really concerned about what his legacy will be because he did the right thing and he knows he did the right thing and he wasn't concerned about being remembered. But the fact that he did this, you know, will make him go down in history. So there's there's that natural human inclination to wonder. And then we go to a year uh, after the situation, and we get uh, essentially a talking heads newscast uh, in which uh, three people just are, you know, yelling at each other. It's standard talking heads newscast. Uh, They're the most annoying thing in the world. I hate them. Uh, But you have some guy who used to be a speechwriter for Clark, then you have uh so you very clearly pro Clark, and then you have uh very clearly anti Clark and then someone who is sort of in between, it wasn't quite sure where they stood. And each of these people uh go on trying to frame what Sheridan did in either a positive or a negative light, each according to their own uh party line, their own I wouldn't say belief system, because uh, party-line politics is d- doesn't believe in anything, really. Uh, you simply do what the party tells you to do. Uh, party says X is good and Y is bad, therefore X is good and Y is bad. That's just the way party politics works. Uh, and uh, w- we see that uh, everybody is just kind of twisting ...what Sheridan did... ...and turning it into... ...not exactly a mythological legend... ...that happens later in the episode... ...but... ...they're either framing him... ...as... ...uh... ...this great hero... ...someone to love and adore... ...or... ...uh... ...this vile menace who disrupted the natural order... ...of the government... ...and it essentially creates a narrative around Sheridan... ...where... ...um... His his own opinions don't matter. What he stood for doesn't matter. Everybody's going to twist him and use him as a symbol. As I mentioned last time, he became a symbol. That and the and There's wonderful things about symbols. They're immortal. They last forever. You can't destroy it. You can't break it. That symbol will always be there, no matter what it stands for. But that's the problem, is what it stands for can be warped and changed and diluted depending on the narrative being spun about the symbol at the time. Uh, So, someone like Sheridan, uh, you know, who's too humble to, uh, to admit to doing anything drastic and just simply says, I was there at the right time doing the right thing. And the politicians who are, you know, clamoring to try and make sense of the power of vacuum of Earth are going to turn him into whatever they see fit. And we see this come to a head in the next bit of the the, the sort of next short story, which is a 100 years later, where we see academia, the these academics, uh, sort of analyzing the Interstellar Alliance's impact on the fact that there has been effectively a hundred years of peace in galactic history, the, first, the longest span of peace uh, in recent history, and Sheridan uh, and his overall impact on uh, the way the ISA came about, it evolved and changed. Uh, and there's a certain irony here with the academics of they... So, there's this, in academia, there's this belief that everything, uh, you know, uh, must come down to uh, whoever is the smartest. It's not about making sense. It's about word salad. Um, and so, a lot of what the academics are saying, if you notice, the two big ones that are talking um, outside of the moderator, uh, both take a stance that Sheridan was just a linchpin and he didn't really enact all these changes and are rather anti-Sheridan in many ways but they each take a different stance on the way they are anti-Sheridan uh you know one is very very much uh on the on the side of history is being warped and changed to uh stand up Sheridan as some sort of mythological figure a great hero uh, and then the other one is the belief that there is some truth to what is being said, but there's got to be some logic behind it. And they're both in agreement that no one person could ever do this. Uh, and of course, the irony that we, the viewer, know that one person did do this. But it also runs in tandem, if you remember, way back in the Gathering, very first thing of Babylon 5 ever. There's a scene where Sinclair sits down with Delenn in the the Zen garden. And Delenn talks about what fascinates her about the Japanese stone garden is that each line is perfectly symmetrical. Perfect, orderly, until you get to the rock. And then that one rock changes the way that the circles are done, changes the symmetry, changes everything. In effect, one thing changed the entire course of that garden. And the point of that scene was to instill in us, and now having got to season four, and seen what happened, that one person, all it takes is one person to stand up and say no, as Sheridan would say, and be able to change the galaxy. And so the irony is that these academics refuse to acknowledge this. Even though there's been this um, mythological status around Sheridan, they refuse to believe it. Um, And they simply don't care about knowing the truth. They want to espouse their opinion. much like the poli- uh, pl- uh, the the political people in the one year later, they also wanted to use Sheridan to spout their own opinions in politics. Uh, and the scene where Delin shows up is perfect because she you know it, it looks at them and just says, you know, you do not wish to know. You only wish to speak. That which you know, you ignore. And that which you do not know, you invent. That is the problem inherent with academia, in history in general, is that history is contextual. It's also entirely conjecture. Uh, for years, hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, you know, we did not have any record of history. And then when we began to take records of history, they were uh, sort of abused to propagandize about certain ideas, certain beliefs, certain religions. And as such, sources cannot be just taken as a whole you have to second-guess them you have to look up other sources compare notes figure out history especially ancient history is really hard to figure out and and takes a lot of effort to decipher uh and even then we're not sure if we're right uh and so people can easily turn that around to their advantage uh, and use that against them, or against their better nature to sort of warp it and change it to fit their needs. As we see with the, these academics, they're more concerned about making their own mark in history. Uh, and... So they want to tear down this mythological Sheridan uh, and this grand ISA, you know, the Interstellar Lines, that it was the work of many people and uh, no one person could have done this. And the irony is, is that they're trying to bolster themselves in the idea that because if they were in Sheridan's situation, they probably would not have stood up, which means none of this would have happened by being the academics and being able to literally go to the intelligentsia and say, this is truth, this is, uh, you know, false, um, they are able to get away with sort of tampering with history, which is what we'll see again uh, in uh, the, the segment with the uh, division amongst uh, the the Earth uh, or sort of Earth and its colonies five hundred years later, um, but D'Lynn what I love about when she shows up outside of her just dismantling the academics just with one sentence, is for her. Sheridan was not a mythological figure. He was her husband. In in Mambari culture, there's a lot about revering your dead. You know, uh, Dukat and that uh, the religious cast member that turned to warrior and then wanted to be buried as religious, or Nevrune giving his life by converting the warrior to the religious. Of uh, sort of, and of course, the entire religion around Valen. There's this entire idea that those that put their mark on history should be remembered. But if you notice, what she says about Sheridan is very sentimental. She says he was a good, kind man who cared about the world even when it didn't care about him. That's all she came there to say. And that's what's wonderful is that he wasn't a mythological figure to her. He was her husband. And... On that small scale, in the grand scheme of history, what we remember people as is what they accomplish. The founding fathers of the United States are remembered for founding uh, one of the longest running you know, democracies slash republics in history. But they're not remembered for much else. Uh, and in many ways they've been mythologized, which we'll, I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, in the revisionist history idea, uh, and we don't really think about the human level. Uh, I, I mean, just look at George Washington and the the cherry tree folktale. Like, we don't focus on the human element. We focus on our larger-than-life attitudes. But to someone close, they were just an ordinary human. And I think that's important to remember, in the context of history is that every single person that made a decision was a person they had loved ones and they cared and they felt and they lost and I think that is something that's missing from academic circles is the acknowledgement that these people were people and not some great figure of history now 500 years later We have a division amongst the earth and its colonies. And it's sort of a repeat of the Clark regime feeding on the xenophobia uh, and and sort of breeding a future, you know, uh, group of uh, fascists. And there's this idea of good facts versus real facts that they are going to uh, revise history. Because Sheridan and Delyn and the rest of the V five crew in general are revered as these great heroes, that they must be torn down. And it doesn't matter how they do it, it's just they have to do it. Um you know, it can be as blatant and stupid as they want, uh but that that's ultimately the point is to sort of Make history what you want to. Uh, As we saw through the progression, uh, you know, one year, 100 years now, 500 years, everybody was turning Sheridan into what they wanted him to, but the truth of what he did slowly but surely made its way through. But revising history changes the history books, and thus essentially erases credibility from anybody that disagrees with the state line. As such, uh, you know, Sheridan is now being uh, sort of uh, shown to be this megalomaniac, war criminal, evil, you know, power-hungry madman. The complete reverse of what he really was, but that's because it fits the party line. And this is very, very much in the way of a lot of dictatorships and authoritative uh, governments, is they will revise history to fit what they believe and what they want you to believe, so that any dissenters uh, can be ignored or discredited. you know, Stalin was a, you know, a big uh, uh, sort of proponent of revising Russian history to prop up the Communist Party, uh, in particular himself, as this great grand leader of the working class in which he was really nothing like that and he, you know, single-handedly led to one of the worst famines in modern history. But, you know, this is what, Megalomaniacal people seem to do. And um hell it's even been in recent history, as of last year, even, um there was in the US anyway, uh the seventeen seventy six Commission. It was put in by former President Donald J. Trump and the idea was to make history more palatable american history in particular that effectively there was no issues between race relations that the the founding fathers were perfect and wonderful people who did nothing absolutely wrong like own slaves uh and sort of make history conform to what the state wants you to believe not in not a truth and history in academia should be about truth first and foremost. Thankfully, that commission was shut down before any changes could be implemented. But revisionist history happens all the time. Hell, I guarantee some of the history that I read when I was in school or history you read when you were in school is some of it has been revised and changed. I mean, canonicity, uh, is a term that comes from the Catholics, uh, it was when, uh, the, the Catholic Church decided to chop up the Bible and figure out what passages fit with their belief and their, their idea of what a good Christian should be and get rid of the rest, uh, and so there are now many different interpretations of the Bible outside of the fact that it was already an interpretive text, uh, all based around canonicity. Uh, revisionist history happens all the time. Uh, and it's sometimes hard to tell the difference between fact and reality and uh, fiction. And that that is truly a sad thing. And this is how evil wins the long game, is they ultimately change the facts to fit their narrative. And... Uh, What's interesting is, uh, you know, outside of all this uh, idea about revisionist history is that the scene where Sheridan is, you know, executing the people in a very evil, ham-fisted way or Franklin's doing weird ham-fisted mad scientist experiments all done in the guise of revisionist history takes on a new context from when this was filmed. In 2021, deep freak technology is quite uh, pronounced and quite popular. It's been around for a couple of years now, uh, and it's used quite often in various different uh, genres, from legitimate stuff like, uh, you know, uh, using the digital likeness of Peter Cushing to have Grand Moff Tarkin show up in Star Wars Rogue One long after the actor was dead. Or, uh, you know, to uh, map a famous celebrity's face on a porn star uh, for uh, pornography uses. This is a very dubious technology that is only going to get more and more dubious as the lines between reality and the Uncanny Valley get smaller and smaller. Uh, and so I wouldn't be surprised if one day someone is able to put words in someone's mouth via Mickey. it looks like they actually said it, said it much like this guy is trying to do the Sheridan, and I think that is interesting, it is both a scary and interesting prospect that, that we are advancing in such a way that we can create things with, uh, people that are long gone, or, uh, or create things out of whole cloth using the fake te- technology, But it also is scary that we could be approaching a very dark future as a result. This is uh, the invasion of someone's privacy. uh, And and without consent, because they are dead in some cases, you know, where is the line drawn? Uh, And I, I am by no means someone who is an expert and can draw those conclusions, but I just find it interesting that this entire setup sort of takes on new meaning in the current day long after this was made you know this was 97 you know deep fic technology was probably not even considerational jms's part um but it's here now <laughs> you know it's kind of interesting in a way I also love how just, just another bit of that that, uh, that part of the episode, Garibaldi just being Garibaldi, even though he's a hologram recreation of him, Garibaldi is, well, very smart, very competent, he's a detective, and he knows what he's doing, and he's great at manipulating people into admitting their faults. And so he fucks the, you know, fascists over and that that leads to uh, you know, probably the saving of the ISA and humanity in general, not without a start period, certainly, but in the end, uh, in the final analysis, it was the right thing to do. And then we jump a thousand years ahead. Uh, and this bit is very much, uh, a, an interesting idea of that, uh, because of what happened with, uh, the war between earth and its colonies and, uh, that, Earth has been, you know, had this great burn that wiped away technology uh, and that people fear technology and they've reverted back to sort of a dark ages uh, where it's a mix of modern and futuristic technology with older technology and they have sort of become more insular and uh, they don't know about outer space or any aliens or anything. Uh, And they have reverted to sort of revering Sheridan and the rest of the B5 crew as almost deities, you know, Delenn the Wise, uh, you know, they're in a holy book. Uh, you know, a Bible, effectively. And, the, and they talk about it in along the lines of the of the actual Holy Bible, implying that they have now been canonized as actual bits of a holy text. And who knows if it's been all holy texts or just the Christian one. Uh, that they have been so mythologized in Earth culture that they have become gods uh, in a way they have become immortal. And I like how... Uh, this sort of ties in. One of my favorite works of fiction is uh, The Witcher by Andrzej Sapkowski. A wonderful book series. I uh, highly recommend you read it. Um, and in it, especially in uh, the final book of the main series, not the final book to be released, but the final book in the main Witcher saga, is called The Lady of the Lake. And there is a uh, significant uh, portions of the pages devoted to these characters that are in the far future, way divorced from anything going on. Her uh, name is Kadwi and Nimue. And effectively, they are historians looking back at the events of the books of the Witcher series and trying to decipher fact from fiction. What has been, uh, you know, ingrandized, uh, you know, fictionalized and immortalized as fairy tales? And what truly happened um and a lot of this you know as I said is is part of the way history is done you know a lot of it is interpretive um but I I like how this episode sort of acts as a nice sort of um parallel to that series uh, two of my favorite bits of fiction sort of having similar ideas about looking at history through the lens of characters in the future looking back at our main characters um, and what that says about the secular nature of history and how we are constantly doomed to make the same mistakes and repeat many things they all take different forms obviously because tech and whatever you know uh, sort of expands and progresses, but eventually, you know, of so Boris, things will circle around in the end. Um, so, the Rangers, I'm not sure how to take this. The Rangers have sort of this thing where they are hiding out on Earth, sort of slowly but surely introducing more and more tech to uh, humans to slowly get them used to trusting technology again so that over time they can rebuild Earth, and this time hopefully a less divided Earth, a better Earth. Now that, I'm not sure how to take that. I like the idea of them hiding out and slowly uh, giving tech, but the idea that they are going to create an Earth that's a better Earth veers on the side of um, Vision is history <laughs> again. Uh, every short story touches on that, and I'm not sure if that, if, if in this case, if it can be turned into a positive or not. I am not sure. We do see, however, that in a million years, uh, humans have become this cycle's forlons. that they now are now uh, energy beings that exist in an environmental suit much like the Vorlons did and as we saw Jason Hironart become back in season one when he said he would see us in a million years um, when we have, uh, you know, become. Because he was becoming, then he became, and we are still becoming. Uh, and in a million years we will reach that apex. And so essentially the cycles of history repeat again. This time humans are the elder race and whatever lesser race that they are are um, sort of overseeing who knows uh but history repeats again and again and i like how it ties back into sinclair's speech and in infection yeah i know that episode that wasn't very good uh it has a great ending speech about how if we don't go to the stars we will lose everything because you know eventually our son will cool, crawled and die and, uh, and it won't just take Earth with it. It will take, you know, Marilyn Monroe, Lonsu, Einstein, etc. And these things need to be preserved for future generations. And so you have a human, uh, coming, you know, to the death, the heat death of the sun, uh, before it goes nova, and preserving all of history to be sent out to the colonies to to all be remembered so that we don't lose Marilyn Monroe, Lansu, or Einstein, or whatever. That all culture and all history of the human race is preserved. And I like how this episode kind of sells the idea that Babylon 5 was just a five-year look at a living, breathing universe. That... This universe existed long, long before the events of this series began and will continue long, long after the events are done. Uh, that is the beauty of fiction, uh, is that uh, we can see in a microcosm the effects of history. How things repeat, how things change, how things progress. Uh, and... Uh, having something that is effectively a historical document, in a way, of another world is fascinating. And this was just a five-year glimpse at it, but there's still more to come. Whether those stories need to be told is another question entirely, and I would say they don't have to be. That doesn't matter. This world is now a living, breathing world on its own, and it came from the mind of J. Michael Straczynski... And whatever comes afterwards, you know, doesn't matter. It's a piece of fiction. Uh, And the point of fiction is to turn a lens to real life and say, uh, look in the mirror. What do you see wrong? What do you see good? You know, here's our strengths. Here's our weaknesses. Uh, And the fact that we as humans only live a short time on this earth and the wheel of history will keep turning many many years down the line, long after we are nothing but dust. And we won't be able to live out and see if we had an impact or if, uh, you know, something fundamentally changed. But in fiction, we can. And I think that that is one of the greatest strengths of just creativity in general. Now, the last bit of this episode ends with a saying... Uh, sort of a title card. Dedicated to all the people who predicted that the Babylon Project would fail in its mission. Faith manages. This is a two-pronged uh statement. First, it's obviously a, yay, we, we got saved from not getting a fifth season, so this can be continued on. But also, it's a middle finger from JMS to everyone that stood against him. Um... When I was in university, I was tasked with uh, one of my classes. I was tasked with sort of writing a uh, docudrama, sort of a uh, you know biopic, and I chose JMS. Uh, And I and I dug through his history, and there was a lot of opposition he got to Babylon Five. Some people said it can't be done. Some people said it shouldn't be done. Uh, and he was pitching Babylon 5 and running through, you know, hoop after hoop and getting turned down everywhere and being told this is dumb, this is stupid for nearly a decade before he finally got to make it. And even then, he ran at the hurdle after hurdle after hurdle, making it until finally his vision came to fruition. So this is him saying, I did it because... You know, I just made history, and I don't care what my legacy is. I just wanted to say I was here and I did it. One of the things about being a writer, uh, and you know, being a writer myself, having a degree in creative writing, is the idea of legacy. That writers essentially are not uh, are, are not mortal. We are immortal in a way, and I don't mean physically. That's dumb. What I mean is that our ideas continue on past us. Long after I'm dead and buried, people will come back to this podcast or, you know, uh, any of the comics I self-published and will be able to see the name Kyle share and be able to share my thoughts long after the real person is gone and I'm long dead and buried. And that will be the same with JMS and Babylon 5 and any, any of his other numerous works. You know, there's this saying, Mozart didn't die. He just merely became music. Uh, And I think that, in a way, is, you know, indicative of what it means to be a creative person in this world, is that we want to leave a legacy. And that doesn't mean that we need to have children or anything. It just means putting our ideas out here and saying, I existed. I did something. I tried to make the world just a little bit better. And I hope you stayed along for the ride. And for JMS, he fundamentally changed the way television is made in America. You know, uh, he can live without legacy, uh, you know, and die without legacy. He will still be remembered. But at the end of the day, this message isn't just about him. It's about anybody who has a dream and a passion they want to do, a legacy to leave behind. Because there are always going to be people who say it can't be done. Or it shouldn't be done. all what you need to do is say, No, I was here. I want to have my say before I go. Faith manages. So that's it for The Deconstruction of Falling Stars. What a phenomenal episode and very different from your standard B5 episode. I shall see you next time for the movie, uh, In the Beginning. Uh, before we clear you on to the final season, season five. I'll see you then, bye.